Hey, look at my watch. It's November. That means it's holiday shopping time. It also means you have a fancier watch than I do, because yours has the date on it. Mine doesn't. Yeah. The point, though, is all extant West Wing Weekly merchandise is currently available once again for a small window. It's true. Actually, if you have a big window, you can get the merch, too. That's right. Or if you just have money. Mm -hmm. You can get all the t-shirts that we've ever designed, the lapel pins, the coin, the poster, the baby onesie, the baby hat, and the kids t-shirt. Where can you find all this fantastic stuff? You can find it at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. That's thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. All of it's on sale between now and December 10th. So if you put in your order before December 10th, you should get it before the end of the year. Go shop. Thank you. Some things are hard to control, like the volume at a music festival. Other things are easy to control, like your in-home Wi-Fi. With Xfinity XFi, you get fast speeds and the ultimate control over your home Wi-Fi network with the XFi app. You can do things like see which devices are online and how long they've been connected, or set a Wi-Fi curfew for that someone who checks social media at 3 in the morning. So go ahead and take control of your Wi-Fi with Xfinity XFi. It's simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store to learn more. Xfinity Internet Required. Other restrictions apply. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Article. Articles inspired by mid-century modern and Scandinavian simplicity. They're an online-only furniture company that offers beautiful furniture. Why do they sell online exclusively? Because price matters, and no retail stores means that they don't have to pay expensive rent and charge you more. You've heard me talk about how much I love my chicha alpaca throw. Yeah, I have. I love it. It's a really lovely blanket that is comfortable, but it's also a design statement. Because like all of the article stuff, it looks great in my living room. You know that of an evening, I like to expound on my bomba poofs. I do know that. They are gorgeous. You can sit on them. You can sit on another chair, put your feet up on them. You can use them as a little table. And here's your chance to save $50 off of a purchase of $100 or more. Just go to article.com slash West Wing, and then your discount will be applied to your purchase. Once again, that's article.com slash West Wing. Go to article.com and check out the goods. Chicha. Poof. You're listening to a special episode of The West Wing Weekly. Today, we're talking about all the ways in which The West Wing helped influence another show about idealistic people in government, Parks and Recreation. Parks and Rec aired on NBC from 2009 to 2015. It was nominated for loads of Emmys and a couple of Golden Globes, including a win for its star, Amy Poehler, in the role of Leslie Nope, who frankly would have done very well in the Bartlett administration. If you haven't seen Parks and Rec... One, get on it because you're missing out. And two, if you want a quick crash course before you keep listening to this episode, press pause here and then we recommend you watch at a bare minimum the last two episodes of season two plus the live ammo episode, which is season four, episode 19. This is an amazing show. And if you can't be bothered to watch all of it, well, God, Jed, I don't even want to know you. (laughs) There are two parts to our conversation today. We spoke with the co-creator of the show, Michael Schur, who's also responsible for creating or co-creating a bunch of great TV shows, the American version of The Office and then Parks and Rec, followed by Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and then most recently, The Good Place, some of the best TV around. We also have the charming and dashing Mr. Adam Scott, who played Ben Wyatt in the show and also is a West Wing superfan. Separately, Rishi spoke to Rob Lowe, dreamy about joining the cast and playing the iconic character of Chris Traeger, 
of whom we have literally spoken in the past in relation to Sam Seaborn. That's all coming up right now. Thank you guys for joining us. Sure. This is Michael Shore. I was the co-creator of uh, Parks and Recreation and a big West Wing fan, which I think is more why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is Adam Scott. I played Ben Wyatt on uh, Parks and Recreation, also a big West Wing oh, that's fan. That's where I know you from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We had met many times. I fr- yeah, I knew you looked familiar. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Mike, I was wondering if you could tell us how Parks and Rec got started, because it feels like the West Wing was kind of part of the DNA of the show. It was, very much. So I worked on The Office, the American Office, with Greg Daniels for the first four seasons, and then he asked me if I wanted to develop a show with him, and uh, I'm not an idiot, so I said yes. (laughs) So we started kicking around ideas, and the one that was very sticky very early in the process was to basically say, okay, The Office was about a fictionalized private sector, And so what if we do fictionalized public sector? And at the time, my first child had been born fairly recently, and I was binging The West Wing, which I had never seen before. I totally missed it when it was on. So this is like 2007, 2008, and my wife and I started watching it because we were up all night with the kid. And I just fell in love with it. And the way we, Greg and I actually ended up pitching the show was a comedy version of The West Wing. And the thing that we said in the pitch was, if the stakes of the West Wing are Russia and China are facing off in Kazakhstan, the stakes of this show will be the boys' soccer team and the girls' soccer team both book the same soccer field. And this is about the people who have to deal with those kinds of problems. And uh, that's the way we pitched it. It was comedy West Wing. Like, from the very beginning, that was the idea. If we take the drama of the West Wing and turn it into the comedy of, like, a small, semi-incompetent town, um, that'll be where our show lives. So that was that was an actual pitch. You created characters who would treat those stakes exactly as importantly exactly, as right. uh, as President Bartlett did. Which yeah, I that, love. yeah, that That's was the secret sauce. Yeah, well, that was like the people who work in local government. There's two versions of them. There's the people who are doing it because there's nothing else to do, or because they fell backwards into it, or whatever. And then there are people who, like at any at government of any level, are true believers who care very deeply about the town, the place that they're representing, and. So we were like, all right, we're going to show one of those people and a bunch of the other people <laughs> who don't care that much, and then we're going to follow her path through the through life. And so that was the that was the from the very beginning that was the pitch. And how did that pitch go over? Because when the West Wing was first pitched, there was a lot of resistance about the idea of doing a show about politics at all. Sure, it was an easier sell for two reasons. Reason number one. Greg Daniels was the most powerful showrunner in America at that point because The Office had been this incredible success story and NBC basically said, do whatever you want. So they had no choice. <laughs> they, had to, they had to let him do what he wanted and to uh, put it on the air. So that was good. And then the second thing was, it's an easier sell, I think, to say, like, this is not Republican-Democrat politics, right? This is not... In fact, most, most local governments don't even have party affiliations. Most city council people don't have party affiliations, or at least don't have to declare them. We were able to say, leave all of the kind of intensity and partisan bickering behind and just say, this is just about the way that people need their government for basic things, for pothole filling and driver's licenses and soccer field bookings. So by sidestepping some of the rancor of the national debate, we were able to sell the show as just like, this will just be fun. And the first season was just six episodes. Right. How long did it feel like before you figured out what the, the show was? Right around the time we shot the finale. 
<laughs> I would say I was like, yeah, okay, I get this now. <laughs> yeah, so we only did six the first season, and mostly because Amy Poehler had been pregnant, and the show was supposed to debut at exactly the moment that she was supposed to give birth. We were picked up for 13 episodes without a script or an idea hmm. or anything. But then Amy, Amy's schedule, her pregnancy schedule, didn't work out with our proposed shooting schedule. But we were like, well, who cares? Like, it's Amy Poehler. You don't, you know, not cast Amy Poehler because of some imaginary schedule that you made up. So we voluntarily gave up seven of our episodes and a spot debuting after the Super Bowl hmm. in order to get Amy. And as a result, our season was just cut. Don't We could only shoot six. It was very chaotic. The sixth episode of that first season was called Rock Show. And it was the first time that we, at least in the writer's room or like backstage of the show, it was the first time that we felt like we got it. Like what the show should be, what the character's attitude should be, that sort of thing. That was the first time. And that, that episode was about Leslie goes, has a meeting with like a powerful guy from a neighboring town set up by her mom. And she thinks it's going to be like a high level kind of like strategy session and then what she finds out is that it's actually her mom was like setting her up on a blind date with this like 65 year old bald guy and the way that leslie nope reacted to that situation we were like okay this is right this is correct hi mom he thinks we're on a date did you tell him we were on a date honey if i told you it was a date you never would have gone you're not getting any younger well neither is he and he's 62 years old oh just go back in there and finish the dinner you don't have to have sex with him if you don't want to. What? Are you crazy? Because what she wanted to be taken seriously as a professional and as a person who had an interest in government, and she wanted to get into the nitty-gritty kind of wonky government stuff, and the rest of the world was seeing her as, like, an eligible bachelorette, <laughs> you know? And so the way that she reacted to that and the way that we wrote Chris Pratt's character and just a bunch of stuff about the mechanics of the show just sort of clicked. And so that was the first time I felt like at all even competent, I would say. In the second season, I felt like the West Wing parts of the show really start to shine in terms of the uh, optimism about what government can accomplish. Yeah. Yes, I would say that's right. You know what's interesting is because, maybe because the West Wing was so baked into the idea of the show, we tried to do a bunch of West Wingy things in the first couple of years, and they all failed. Uh, we, How well, so? we tried to do, I wrote a cold open early in the second season, the idea of which was a classic West Wing cold open walk and talk. It was going to be Steadicam, which we had never done before. You know, the show was very handheld and very loose and stuff. And I was like, we're going to do a Steadicam handheld walk and talk thing. And it's going to, and the point of it is going to be that Leslie Nope is walking through the hallways. And instead of the important C.J. Craig being handed memos and then writing something and handing them back and people coming in and talking and then leaving and whatever, it was just going to be annoying, stupid things that she had to deal with in her life that were unimportant and that were annoying. So we wrote it, and I think we actually, I could be wrong, I think we actually did it in the read-through. And the problem is, is that walk and talk is terrible for comedy. It's like because it comedy is so much about rhythm and it's about shaving frames off of a reaction shot in the edit bay and whatever that when you had to do it as a oneer and people are like moving while they're doing jokes it was like oh this is never going to work and I just we just junked it and so there were all of the kind of stuff that I had at one point imagined being West Wingy about the show a lot of it kind of fell away what was left was that was what you're talking about was the optimism and the sense that like. It stinks and it's hard and you make mistakes and the when you make mistakes, people get hurt and all that sort of stuff. But when you do something good, it's worth it. That the people who were 
dedicated to the idea that government can help people. When they have successes, it actually matters. They actually affect people's lives in a good way. That was what was left. That was like that sort of West Wing residue then permeated the show forever, I would say. Yeah, one of the most successful things about the show is that it's so incredibly funny, and yet the poignant and touching moments actually pay off. I rewatched in anticipation of talking to you guys just the moment where uh, Leslie gets to vote for herself. Let's see, I can't figure this thing out. Can you help me? Yeah, just hang on a second, Bobby. Yeah. I thought, this is, this is as moving as any single moment in the West Wing. <laughs> and then there's immediately jokes following and you're laughing again, but it lands emotionally. Yeah, well, that was, like, it's not an easy thing to do all the time to carve out space in a comedy show to do that. And, and because it's, like, not cool. Comedy was, if you were, like, sincere in your uh, writing or your acting, it was, like, you're not, it's uncool. And the being uncool is, like, the number one fear of a lot of comedy writers. But I think, and I, I don't want to, like, give too, I don't want to, like, locate too much of this on the West Wing, but, like, no one did sincerity like the West Wing, like, in TV at the time. And I just sort of always felt like, and so did Greg, and so did everybody who worked in the show, like, and then, by the way, this came from The Office, too. On The Office, Greg Daniels' whole thing was, like, we're going to take 90 seconds or two minutes an episode and say, like, there don't have to be jokes here. This is about, these are purporting to be real people. We're purporting to be documenting their real actions and emotions and stuff. And so the reality is, like, there's going to be chunks of time where we just say, like, these are just people talking to each other, and that's okay. Parks and Rec did that faithfully until the very end. Like, the almost the entire finale is, is like that yeah, that's right. <laughs> at some level, yeah. So at the end, end of season two, you introduced Ben Wyatt and Chris Traeger. Adam, how, do you remember when you first heard about Parks and Rec? Were you watching the show before you got on on the show? I was. I, actually, the first time I heard about it was when they announced that Mike and Greg were going to make a new show together. And I think at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but I think at the time, like when it was first announced it was announced as a sort of office spinoff mm-hmm. is that, that that was a uh, an unfortunate yeah. leak of an incorrect piece of information yeah yeah but whatever it was i remember i was in a a house i was on location in a freezing part of connecticut <laughs> and i was between seasons of tell me you love me right. on hbo and it was before they had canceled it, and we were going to go shoot another season, I think. But I remember seeing this announcement and emailing one of my reps and saying, hey, can we get me off of this show, and, and can I get on this one? Like, as a, <laughs> as a joke, because I had been wait, we had been waiting a year to start shooting the second season of— and it was starting to feel like maybe it wasn't going to happen, which it mm-hmm. it didn't. So by the time they were auditioning people for Parks and what ended up being Parks and Rec, I was able to audition for it. And I went in and auditioned, I remember, with Rashida and Mike and choked. I, I was too nervous and, and it just didn't happen. And I was really bummed out. But then immediately afterwards, my friends Rob Thomas, Dan Etheridge, and John Enbaum and Paul Rudd, who had created Party Down, asked me to go and do that. And so so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm free. <laughs> and so I went and, and did that. And then I think because of Party Down, 
Mike ended up asking me, "Is is that right? It was Party yeah. Down part of the equation?" There? I was I was a fan of yours before Party Down, and you like to talk about how you bombed in that audition, but you really didn't. And I remember talking to Howard Klein from Three Arts about. I remember being like, "This guy, we're bringing this guy back. We got to bring this guy back." And then we were making changes to the show at the end of season two. You and I had a meeting yes. in my office, yeah, and I was like, "Listen." We don't know exactly what this is, but we're adding a character who's going to be a love interest for Leslie. Do you want to do it? I think I just said, I don't, it wasn't like, let's have a coy Hollywood meeting where we like pretend that there, there's a lot, I have a lot of options and you have a lot of options. Yeah, I yeah. was just kind of like, do you want to be on the show? Yeah. <laughs> I remember that and I was so flattered because I was a fan of the show. Once it started airing, I, I watched the show and yeah, you said that and, and I, think I said yes right there you did, and yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. So it was an uncoy, uh, very yeah. honest Hollywood meeting. Yeah, which is the better kind of meeting, I yeah. think, right? Yeah. It happened in the room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and when was the idea created that Ben would also have this partner in crime of Chris Traeger? Well, early on, the idea for Adam's character became this thing that I had been obsessed with for a while, which was that story you read at once every couple of years about it, like an 18-year-old <laughs> high school senior who becomes a mayor. <laughs> because I have, every time that story happens, I'm, I, I'm, I think to myself the same thing, which is you never get a, like a follow-up where it's like, four years later, he's doing great. It's all like you just never hear about them <laughs> again because well. undoubtedly there's no way that goes well. It either, either nothing happens, either it's a town where like the mayor is sort of an honorary position, or the 18-year-old moron b- runs the town into the ground. And so, in fact, one of the original ideas for Leslie Nope was that she was that person, that she had been the mayor and had dug herself a hole and had, was trying to climb back. And we eventually abandoned that because we thought it was too limiting for, like, the main character of a show to build around. But I was like, oh, wait, here's the guy. Like, a guy who who had that happen to him and then had spent the rest of his life trying to prove that he was, like, a responsible adult. It, that's a perfect, not only a perfect character for Adam, but a perfect love interest for Leslie Nope. Yeah. And what we loved about it is Leslie was so wonky that she would have known this guy. Have you ever been part of a government body before? Uh, I have, yeah. Small town called Partridge, Minnesota. Why does that sound familiar? You're Benji Wyatt? I am. When I was 18, I ran for mayor of my small town and won. And she starts to get like a flash of recognition and phrase. And we just like the idea that she was such a nerd about politics that she like, she would, that story is in her filing <laughs> course, system. Right. So, yeah. Um, immediately I thought, oh, she must, around that time when she was that age, she probably was jealous. Of course. Yeah. She definitely was. She was like, why did that guy get to be mayor, you know? I remember you telling me about this backstory on the phone. I remember driving exactly where I was when you told me about this idea for backstory for Ben Wyatt, and I couldn't have—I mean, that like, when you hear a nice, juicy chunk of backstory <laughs> like that for that you get to play— I, it made me so happy that this was the character. <laughs> and you I was do wear it from the downbeat, from the first intro to Ben. You, you subsequently find out you realize he's wearing the, his backstory <laughs> I and mean, his history. It's deeply ingrained in this. <laughs> so we really liked that idea. So we and we went to NBC and we were like, "This is the guy," and they were like, "Great." Then they called me like a week later and said, "Hey, on the DL." Rob Lowe is looking to either either decided to leave or they I can't remember exactly the situation. He was on that show Brothers and Sisters. Mm-hmm. And they're like, he might be available. 
And we think he would bring a lot of eyeballs to the show because the show wasn't a blockbuster in terms of its ratings. So I was like, well, I really, he's not the right guy for that character at all. But also he's Rob Lowe and he's pretty captivating as a performer. And he did, he would like bring an interesting energy to the show. And so I remember having this conversation with NBC where I was like, do you think we could just shoot the moon here? Do you think we could get both of them? And it immediately it sort of fell into place. It was like they were partners Rob's character was all sunshine and uh, handsomeness and intensity and positivity. And he would come in and say, like, you guys are great and I love you and we're going to do amazing things. And he would leave and Adam would come in and just bring the hammer down. Simply, we are here to tinker with your budget. My uh, partner Ben is going to stick around for a little bit and I will see you all later. Okay, you need to understand that just to keep this town afloat, we probably have to cut the budget of every department by 40 or 50 percent. Okay. Well, but Chris said that you just had to, you know, tinker with things. Yeah, he said that because that sounds a lot better than we're going to gut it with a machete. And so I sort of laid out almost extemporaneously how it would work. And they're like, yeah, all right, sounds good. And then it became like, okay, there's, it's like a comedy team. And from the very beginning, it was a very successful comedy team. It's like you always hear network horror stories, right? Like people love telling network horror stories of meddling and and screwing things up. But in this case, they were really great. Like they not only were trusting of us to say like, yes, create this character for Adam Scott, great. And then they were like, but also Rob Lowe's available and we'll pay for Rob Lowe to be on your show too. Like that's a very rare thing. And, yeah. they, and, it, was, and it was smart. It was when networks are good, this is how they're good. They are proactively thinking about, we like this show, what could we add to this show that would sort of like bring new viewers? I'm forever grateful to them for that time because they, they were supportive of like the organic creative idea and then they had their own outside idea that was also good that, uh, that helped the show, you know? So let's switch gears here for a moment. I spoke to Rob Lowe to get his thoughts on Parks and Recreation. When Parks and Rec was first airing, Rob had been on another show, Brothers and Sisters. So I was wondering if you remember how the conversation about Parks and Rec first entered your life. How did you first hear about this show and, and get approached about being on it? So around the fifth year of Brothers and Sisters, the network gets the bright idea that they don't want to do any more stories with anything political in them. No political storylines whatsoever under any circumstances. I'm playing a guy running for president. Right. So that's not a good day in my house. Right. So instantly I go from what I thought was a really compelling, interesting, fun character to a guy who stood around in kitchens wearing oven mitts, making like cheese blintzes with Sally Field. <laughs> so that was the end of the road on that. So as that was winding down for me, my agents and managers were looking for what would be the next thing. And I'm a big 30 Rock fan, as, and who isn't? Right. And I'm a huge Alec Baldwin fan. And somehow somebody had the notion that maybe I would join 30 Rock in some capacity, preferably as like Alec's nemesis or brother or something. And they took that to the network. And this is a different network, right? I mean, Brothers and Sisters was totally an ABC show. 30 Rock is back at NBC. Yeah. Totally unrelated because I'm going to be off of Brothers and Sisters and I'm a free agent again. Yeah. And NBC was like, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, you know, I, I guess. But I'll tell you what would be great if you would ever think about coming on Parks and Rec. <laughs> and they were at a moment where they were, again, like Brothers and Sisters, extremely worried about getting picked up again. Right. So it's not so much that they didn't like the idea of you being on 30 Rock. It's just that they thought that your power could be better leveraged uh, someplace where it was needed more. 100%. So it was sort of a shotgun marriage, to be honest. I liked Parks and Rec, 
but I didn't know much about it. And I don't know how Mike felt about me. I think he was a West Wing fan, but we didn't know each other. Right. But I knew he was smart and the show was good. And it was great people on it. And it was a comedy, which I was looking to do. And so we met and had a great, great, great meeting. And that's how I ended up on Parks and Rec. Can I back up for one second? You said that you were looking for a comedy to do next. But can you tell me about that decision and, and that feeling that you wanted to do comedy at that moment? I kind of like to do whatever it is that I haven't been doing. If I've been doing a few seasons on a drama, I'm ready to cleanse the palate with comedy. Right. And on the other side of it, when I finished Parks and Rec, which I, I did four seasons of, I was very ready to go back and do drama. Yeah. And it's, it's just a thing of keeping it fresh and interesting and doing something different. Yeah. So you had this first meeting with, uh, was it with Michael Shore and Greg Daniels, that meeting? The one I really, really, really remember is the one with Mike. And Amy came by. I remember she was very, very pregnant at the time. And we had not met. Amy and I had not met. And I think it was, I mean, clearly it was a meeting of, you know, she would come in and go, "How is this guy crazy? Could I work with him? Yeah. What's the deal? I mean, yeah. I, can only, I can only imagine from their perspective, they have this family that loved each other, worked really well together, all the pieces fit. And now all of a sudden you're bringing in another big piece you know, I'm sure it was kind of stressful for them. But the deal that we all made collectively was I would do six episodes. And then at the end of the sixth episode, we would reconvene and see if we all mutually thought it had been a good fit. Right. Does Lorne Michaels play into any of these conversations at all? Like what you were saying about the meeting, you know, Amy stopping by and kind of having a gut check. You had both worked with Lorne Michaels. Mm -hmm. Was there any kind of connective tissue that he provided in any of this? Well, other than the fact that Amy and I fantasized about secretly opening a Twitter account from Lorne Michaels uh -huh. and having daily Lorne Michaels quotes. <laughs> Yeah, but there wasn't that same kind of uh, Broadway video productions connection with uh, Parks and Rec as there was with um, Thirty Rock. No, 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 absolutely yeah. not. It right. was, it was, it felt. Uh, frankly, it had the feel of like if Lauren is everyone's dad in the yeah. world, which he is. <laughs> this was the children's first job away from dad. Got it. So when you started talking to them, what was their pitch to you about the character that you'd be playing? They didn't have one. Okay. Which is really great. And one of the great things about Mike is that he finds people he's interested in them and then sort of writes to them as opposed to, I'm going to write this great character and you will play it. Mm -hmm. He famously did that with Rashida. Rashida was the first person involved in Parks and Rec. And he kind of tailored elements that he felt she brought to the table. He really did it with Nick Offerman. I mean, you know, Ron Swanson is a accumulation, an accumulation of Nick Offerman's most interesting character traits. Right. Which is one of the reasons why our first two meetings were so pivotal in coming up with Chris Traeger. He didn't know me from Adam, and it's really both interesting and mortifying to think that Chris Traeger is a direct result of what Mike Schur thinks of me. <laughs> That's great. And so when did you learn finally what the character would be like, what Chris Traeger would entail? When I read it. Oh, really? Yeah, when I read it. There is a Lauren connection, though, that I've just forgotten. In the beginning, and this changed almost immediately, the notion was that Ben Wyatt, Adam Scott's character, and my character were this team, and that we would come into these departments and make them work correctly. And the way that we worked was that Chris Traeger was this amazingly charming, feel-good guy 
that had the ability to deliver the bad news in a way that made you completely happy. <laughs> this is the best possible job for me. I can literally make anything sound positive. Your house just burned down and you lost all your money in the stock market. It's a chance to start over, fire is cleansing, and true wealth is measured by the amount of love in your life. If I had to have anybody tell me that I had cancer, I would want it to be me. And then Adam came in as the hatchet man. And he says, he's, he's, it'll, be a little, be a, it'll be like Lorne. Lorne has the, a way of telling you bad things or giving you criticism or making you want to do things you never thought about doing and feeling good about it. Hmm. So that was a little bit of it. And we dumped that almost immediately. The good cop, bad cop dynamic? Yeah, we totally dumped it. But the yeah. first two episodes are very good cop, bad cop. Right. Because the first episodes that you appear on are actually the tail end of season two. You're in the last two episodes of season two, which is, you know, I remember when I was watching when it was first airing, thinking this is an enormous guest appearance for the end of a season. Well, and, and because of Amy's pregnancy, we did not film it as a season ending. When I came in, I did my six episodes uninterrupted. Oh. Like, so, so we did the end of season two and a large chunk of the next season together so we could take the time off so Amy could have the baby. Wow. All right. So which is why really early in the end of season two, the network was talking to me very seriously about whether they were even bringing the show back because it was either they're not bringing it back or they're bringing it back and we can do this big guest six episode guest arc that we're going to have to pay off in a season that we don't know if we're bringing it back or not. Right. And at what point did you know that season three was going to happen and that you were going to be, you know, continuing on the show? From my perspective, when they cast me. And at what point did you feel like this was working? For me, we were, we were doing a scene where it was after work. It was very early on. It might even have been in the second episode. And we ended up at a bar, all of us, in the show. And we didn't know that it was a, a big gay bar. And it was. And Chris was really excited about how friendly everybody was in the bar. <laughs> And was really excitedly dancing with all his new friends <laughs> and had no idea what was going on. And I had so much fun doing my silly. It was the first time we, we discovered that Chris Traeger dancing was fun. And I just remember thinking I'm having the time of my life here. <laughs> so for me, it was very early. Yeah. And I know for, and I think for them, and you'll have to ask Mike, it's gotten back to me secondhand that in one of the early episodes which became one of the big ones for Chris called the flu season. Oh yeah. You know, where Chris is the microchip, his body's a microchip. Well, you definitely have the flu. Oh my God. The microchip has been compromised. Stop pooping. So stop pooping was an ad lib. <laughs> really? We would get to do these things on the show called fun runs. And the fun run would be once you've done the scene, you know, the way it's scripted. Yeah. And even the way it's scripted, you always did it the way it was scripted verbatim. But you could always add a little bit to it. Mm -hmm. But then the fun run, you could legitimately do anything you wanted. And I mean anything. Sometimes our fun runs would go on for two minutes. Yeah. And most of it didn't make it into the show. But Stop Pooping was on a fun run. <laughs> and I remember Nick Offerman was at the monitor and he was like, okay, anybody who can be on national television looking at himself in the mirror and saying, stop pooping is welcome here. <laughs> it is one of my favorite moments from the show. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it was a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, then there's one other thing that's coming oh, yeah. back to me too. Is I just ran into Morgan Sackett, who produced all the episodes mm-hmm. and is a big part of the show. And he said, we knew you were a good fit when we had you legitimately as an extra in a crowd of 250 people. <laughs> Literally, you were background. You had no dialogue. <laughs> you were background. And Amy is making a speech. And Amy is trying to say something that the audience isn't liking at all. So it's deadly silent. Yeah. It's a big applause line and it falls flat. And way, 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 way in the back, not in the, again, not in the script, is Chris Traeger going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they went, he's not even really in the scene and he's acting. <laughs> and they're like, that's team player. That's great. And that's the season finale, the Freddy Spaghetti episode. Okay. So, this was, so literally it was my second episode. Yeah. I want to go back to what you said about Michael Shore drawing from the characteristics of the people that he's working with, something that you know we've talked about a lot as a, a tool that Aaron employs as well. Yes. So you have these two characters, Chris Traeger and Sam Seaborn, both of whom have been deliberately imbued with some inherent qualities that you have and characteristics have been written in. In your perspective, how are these two guys similar and how are they different? They are both inherently optimistic. They're both inherently energetic. They both legitimately like people. They have sort of unfailingly sunny dispositions. (laughs) And both of them have sort of an idealized version of what's sort of wrong and what's right. Is it fair to imagine that those are also qualities shared by you? And they're both nerds and bad dancers. So <laughs> let's start with nerds and bad dancing. Yes. And yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is one of those things that I never really occurred to me until two really smart guys wrote these similar traits into two very different characters that maybe it's more about me. <laughs> and like I said, sometimes it's mortifying and sometimes it's highly complimentary. Yeah. Josh has always said about the two characters, his character on Sports Night and his character on West Wing, that they are smarter, nicer versions of him. Yeah, I like that. That makes perfect sense. What do you think are the biggest differences between uh, Chris Traeger and, and Sam Seaborn? Well, Sam, one of the things we discovered, and then we wrote to it a couple of times, is when Sam threw the guy up against a wall and says, If you come after Leo, I'm going to bust you like a pinata. Coming from Sam. Right. Who was so sunny. I always thought of Sam as a puppy. Yeah. That was, I think, was a really compelling turn for him. So he always had that edge underneath him. Yeah. Which was really, really fun and made the puppy sweet nerd stuff not just one-dimensional. Yeah. And what I realized about Chris Traeger is what's amazing about that character in Multifaceted is that he doesn't have any facets. (laughs) Like, legitimately, I would think about things going, well... Maybe there's more of this and there's more of that. And the answer is no. It's energy, positivity, and sunshine. And the only real question is how much can you bring to bear? Yeah. I do love that moment in the West Wing when Toby says, Is there anyone you'd you'd rather have as a blood enemy less than Sam? But you have to dig really deep to get to that kind of heat from him. And I thought maybe you just have to dig a lot further to get there with Chris. But you're saying... You just keep digging and you're just going to keep getting more sunshine. With Sam, you keep digging, you get closer to the darkness. With Chris, you keep digging and you just keep getting closer to the sunshine. (laughs) That's great. There's an episode of Parks and Rec, Live Ammo, where Bradley Whitford guest stars. 
and I had read that this is the episode where Mike really sort of let his West Wing fandom loose. Yes. The one thing I remember about that episode was, you'll have to ask Mike about this. He designed the show, you know, coming from the office to be sort of very anti-lighting. And I remember at one point I'm going, would it kill you to put a scrim above our heads when it's noon and the sun is directly above us? Right. I mean, I know you don't want us to look great, but how about a little help? Yeah. And he was like, no. And so that was sort of the running joke. So I believe on this episode, because he was letting his West Wing fandom go crazy, we actually lit it like a proper television show. (laughs) And they put a beautiful shaft of light in Pawnee, Indiana on that week. The sun appeared in places it had never appeared before. (laughs) And one of them was streaming directly with amber light through Chris Traeger's office. And I took one look at it and knew I know where to stand. And I did my best Sam Seaborn pose (laughs) in the shaft of light. And, you know, we did that thing of somebody coming in and you cut and it's like the silhouette you know, back to camera in the shaft of light, which we would have done a hundred times on any West Wing episode. Right. And we got to do it just once. One <laughs> moment. <laughs> Jerks and Rack. Which was the harder role to play for you, Chris Traeger or Sam Seaborn? I think Sam for sure was more technically hard. And that's the beauty of working for Aaron is not only is it a great character and the writing is stupendous, But Chris, for me, was way more demanding. Well, first of all, dude, I was doing push-ups and pull-ups and running and jumping in every scene. I mean, (laughs) dude, I mean, I had to do a standing jump on top of my desk once. Yeah. You know, you could do like Sam Seaborn in gear one as opposed to gear five. Right. You could do him in gear three. Chris was, you know, balls to the wall 24-7, you know, on a day when you're, you know, maybe you have the flu or you haven't slept well or you're irritable or you're tired. You know, with any other character, you can imbue it with that because that's what human beings are. Chris was not a human being in that way. Right. So it was always that one really intense, frankly, exhausting gear to play all the time. Yeah. Your body had to be that finely tuned microchip. It was a microchip. I've never been in better shape than I was like this. <laughs> if you don't mind, I, I wanted to ask you just another question about Few Good Men and post-West Wing stuff. Yeah. I don't really know much about the details exactly about how everything went down for season four in the West Wing, but that was, I guess, 2002 that all of that stuff was happening. Right. You were in A Few Good Men with Aaron. That was 2005. Right. So you patched things up, I guess, relatively quickly. Was, is that fair to say? Well, yeah. People lost in the mix. Yeah. Is that really, when you really just do the math, Aaron and I left the same season. Right. You could make the argument that we kind of left for the same reasons, really, is the show was at that, it was so big. It was this just gargantuan thing, and everybody was fighting over the scraps. And, you know, now everybody wanted to take a huge ownership of this massive hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I would never have wanted to be on the West Wing without Aaron. And in my book, Stories I Only Tell My Friends, yeah. there are two chapters devoted to my time on the show. And I think if you read those chapters, you know everything you need to know about the ins and outs and the whys, which at the end of the day aren't that important, but I realize a lot of people were interested. Yeah. So that's why I wrote it. Yeah. But Aaron and I loved each other from, it was love at first sight in the audition 
for Sam. So it's always been passionate and like, you know, love, hate. And Sam is very much an ideal. Well, Josh says that his character is a smarter version of himself. I frankly have always thought that Sam was an idealized version of Aaron. So the minute we could figure out a way to do something again, we did, but we always had a connection. And, you know, forgive me if I told you this story the last time we spoke, but when I had just left West Wing and we, you know, weren't really speaking, yeah, I came across the transcript of Steve Jobs' Stanford commencement mm-hmm. and read it and thought, wow, this is amazing. And something made me think of Aaron and something made me send it to Aaron. And I'll never forget sending in the jobs commitment and saying, I know we haven't spoken in a while, but I read this. It's so extraordinary. And it made me think of you. I hope you've seen it. And he wrote back to me, glad you like it. I ghost wrote it. Wow. No, you haven't told me that story. That's awesome. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That's great. This has been so fantastic. I can't thank you enough. Oh, good. Oh, thank you. And just personally, such an honor and a delight always for me to get to talk to you. Oh, thank you. And thank you for sort of just keeping the West Wing flame alive for everybody. You know, it's people take such unbelievable, just this unending pleasure in it. And the fact that you give Josh a job is so <laughs> nice of you. It's, it's really, it's really great. You, you know, you know, Josh, you know, he needs some help sometimes. You know, we all know that about him. I do what I can. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll have more with Mike Shore and Adam Scott. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Simply Safe. If you've been thinking about getting a Simply Safe home security system, but have been waiting for the holidays when all the tech deals come out, well played. You've made a smart move. <laughs> right now, we can get you a great deal on Simply Safe. If you go to simplysafe.com slash Westwing, you'll get 25% off any new system. Hey, that's a deal. They rarely do anything like this, but they're doing it just for us, just for the holidays. SimpliSafe is great protection for your home and your family. They don't make you sign a contract, and there's no hidden fees. And they're getting awesome reviews. CNET, PC Mag, and Wirecutter all say SimpliSafe is the best security system there is. So if you're looking for a security system and want a great deal, go to simplysafe.com slash Westwing to save 25%. Make sure to use that URL because it really does help out the show. It sure does. So that's simplysafe.com slash Westwing. And hurry up. The deal ends November 26th. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way for you to create a beautiful website. No matter what you do, you will find a template that will help you get your stuff onto the web. Whether you're making a website for your business, your artwork, your music, or your podcast, or anything else, it's an easy way to get up and running online. That's right. That's what we did. Squarespace is the engine behind the groovy West Wing Weekly website. That's right. We used one of their beautiful templates to get started, and maintaining the website is so easy, even Josh could do it. That's saying something. So check out squarespace.com slash Westwing for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code Westwing to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash Westwing and use offer code Westwing at checkout. And now back to the show. Did the ratings immediately see a low Scott bump? (laughs) (laughs) They did. It was. It's unclear how to attribute any kind of ratings bump, but I remember specifically like an email after their first episode where they were like, "Look, the ratings went up." You know, like that's what's supposed to happen. And I, you know, in this day and age, and now that's even God. That's what is that? That's eight years ago already, right? Yeah. 
2010? 2010. When? God. It was already hard to track things like overnight ratings. People were already watching stuff on DVRs, but I but I do remember there was an there was an actual ratings bump that happened. I would imagine that whatever the ratings were, it was bigger than anything on network, most anything on network television now, I would imagine, right? Like ratings have changed so much yeah. just in 8 years. I remember when we got a like a 2.1 overnight rating and right. it was like, uh-oh. Right. <laughs> and now <laughs> that's a block <laughs> like, for it. <laughs> yeah, it's twice the ratings of uh, of most network comedies now. Yeah. Adam, did you and Mike talk about the West Wing at all before you started the show? Did you feel that that the sort of West Wing qualities of Parks and Rec that were in there just when you were viewing it before you were on the show? Well, I think that West Wing was so kind of ingrained in me already that I was just always looking for opportunities <laughs> to, like the fact that I got to wear shirt and tie with the sleeves rolled up. I just felt like I was Josh Lyman, you know, just inherently. And I was working with Sam Seaborn. It's just sort of everywhere for me anyway, just as a person. We should have put you in pleated slacks, then you really would have felt like <laughs> Or Josh giant, giant suits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when did, when did you start watching The West Wing? Well, I did watch it when it was on, but I watched it when I could because it was pre-DVR. So I loved it, but I wasn't always home at Wednesday at 9 or whenever it was on. But then I do remember once TiVo started kind of integrating itself into culture, it was on Bravo every afternoon or something. But I just remember this kind of cache of West Wing episodes I could burn through. That's when I started getting to piece together the entire arc and the entire story. And that's when I just couldn't get enough of it. And then I remember when that was happening, it was in its last few seasons. And so I remember, especially the final season, the, the election storyline, making sure to watch that every week. And while at the same time catching up on the earlier episodes. And so I, I was kind of all West Wing all the time there for a while. You had this West Wing influence from the beginning, but then you actually had Rob Lowe on the show. That's right. I mean, it really became explicit. And so for the combo of these characters, I mean, I think both Ben and Chris Rager have West Wing qualities too, but the Sam stuff is obviously... Uh, Right there on Rob Lowe's face. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but so then did you feel like you had to, were you actively addressing that part, you know, the Sam Seaborn aspect of it when you were creating Chris Traeger and, and Ben Wyatt? I remember having a couple conversations with writers in the room about the characters, and I was like, you know, there's a bunch of things we could do that would sort of evoke the West Wing directly. Like, for example, we could say that Chris Traeger went to Princeton or something. <laughs> for a while, I think we actually talked about the idea that he had worked in the White House in some capacity at some point or had been an intern in the White House or something. But I kept being like, what's the point? You know, we're already aiming at the themes of the West Wing, like we talked about, with just sort of like the general optimism of what government can do when it works well or what sort of optimistic people can achieve when they remain optimistic and don't get dragged down by cynicism or whatever. And so then it just started to seem like cheap or something to kind of like... You know, later when we actually did a sort of West Wing-themed episode called Live Ammo in the fourth season, there was a lot of discussion of should we... And Bradley Whitford was a guest star, right? So we we were like, Ooh. okay. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> do you do that every time his name is mentioned? I try to. It's, I mean, actually, the truth is I don't try to. It just happens. <laughs> I try not. It's involuntary. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, watching you guys troll each other on Twitter. I, re- I recently left Twitter, but it was my favorite thing. Anyway, when we were doing that episode, there was a lot of discussion amongst the sort of like Team West Wing, the people on the writing staff that really cared about the show, about like, well, how do we have, we obviously have to have Josh Lyman and Sam Seaborn run into each other. And then it was like, you know, we don't actually. We actually don't have to do that. And I have a very bad memory in my head somewhere of, I think after Seinfeld ended, Jason had a show, right? There was a sitcom, Jason Alexander, and it didn't go that well in my memory. I could be wrong, but like in the sixth episode, Michael Richards showed up and like in the promo for the episode, it was like special guest star Michael Richards and there was a shot of them and Jason Alexander was looking at Michael Richards and he literally was like, I know you from Uh, somewhere or like you look familiar and the crowd like went crazy and it just like it has it was had left such a sour taste in my soul that I was like if we have Bradley Whitford on the show and he crosses paths with Rob and you make any even tiny gesture at that it's just going to be so creepy and sad and whatever so it was like, no, the real, the actual answer here is that they're never going to be in a scene together. Also because Rob Lowe looked exactly the same and Brad, <laughs> it just would have been sad to see Brad in, in the same frame. Come on, man. He's not here to defend himself. Uh, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I the this is all a very long-winded way of saying that like we decided not to do anything. Not to gild the lily. Yeah, exactly. In, in terms of character backstories or anything, we felt like the show was evoking the themes of the West Wing in a certain way, and that was probably enough. You know, that reminds me of just not the exact same thing, but a similar sort of cultural, something that shows reach for sometimes that bums me out. I always think of the time when John Cleese was, I think it was John Cleese was hosting SNL, and he and Michael Palin decided to redo the Dead Bird sketch. The Dead uh, Parrot sketch. That was dead right before sketch. I got to SNL. It was like literally, I think, a month before I got there. Oh, okay. And yeah. and it was played to dead silence. I've got a slug. <laughs> a slug. Yeah, slug. I see. And uh, pray, does this slug of yours talk? <laughs> Not really. Well, it's scarcely a replacement, is it? Uh, it yeah. felt like the audience didn't understand what was happening. It was a live sketch to begin with, so there, it was lightning in a bottle. So right. to recreate it, try and recreate it in front of a live audience is such a risky thing to do. And watching that happen was a real bummer. Yeah. Well, this speaks to, even though I'm constantly stirring the pot because I have a lot of free time. <laughs> Uh, I'm always throwing little breadcrumbs out, creating a trail to leading to a reboot of The West Wing, but it'll never happen, and nor should it. I thought it was discussed recently. Didn't Aaron Sorkin say you guys I, were all together discussing it? We had dinner, a, a bunch of us, and they said, "I'm gonna let's take a selfie, and I'm just gonna write talking reboot." Oh, so it was not. There was no basis. Oh, There's I no see. substance to it. I just wanted to get people. I see. Okay. <laughs> that's a pretty big breadcrumb. That's a big really? fake. A it, big was a, that's a it was a It was an entire challah, really. <laughs> we, um, we talked about live ammo, about that episode from season four with Brad, and he gave us some thoughts about it. 
he said that he loved doing it, and he said that um, it was the sweetest people and such a wonderful show, and he thinks that you should reboot Parks and Rec, but with the West Wing cast. <laughs> oh, there you go. I like that. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. Let me read a little more of what uh, Brad wrote to us. He said, Love the show, love the people, and was thrilled to be on it. I was bummed Rob wasn't working that day because I wanted to torture him. (laughs) Um, I remember getting really insecure because after every take, a bunch of writers would get together with the director and then give you an alternative line or tell you how to say it differently, which I had never experienced doing West Wing, where the words were locked, and if you told us how to say something, Richard might douse himself with gasoline and immolate himself. (laughs) (laughs) So for half the day, I just thought I was just terrible, which gave me an insight. (laughs) into how Molina must feel all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And you said he wasn't here. That's incredible. I take it back, yeah. He is here. Uh, Then I realized, oh, this is how they do comedies, and I calmed down, and it was really fun. That's great. I embarrassingly have to say that it never occurred to me, because comedy is a lot about, like, try this one, try this, try this, try this. Like, we had a bunch of... On that show, um, and this came from The Office, too, we had a document called The Candy Bag, which was like if we wrote a joke and it was like didn't fit into the script or something, we would throw it in the candy bag, and then the writer would have the candy bag on the set and throw out, like, here's some alts or whatever. And it never occurred to me. I knew about the word perfect Sorkin world. It never occurred to me that that might be tricky for an actor to step into uh, who's used to that world stepping into our world and being thrown a bunch of different options and stuff. I, I should have been a little more sensitive about that with him. But he was great. He was great. Yeah, he was uh, He was wonderful. And it was a... that It happened very organically that we started breaking this story and I was like, you know what this is? This is basically the story where Ainsley Hayes writes the memo and reverses the position in this two-page memo and then it just is accepted and then she's freaked out. I don't understand. Leo said yes, that's the end of the meeting. I was just talking, Sam. I was just talking to you. Well, we play with live ammo around here. That's how we started breaking the story. And then as we got more and more into the actual story, I was like, this isn't just like that story. This (laughs) is that story. And this is dicey now. And I feel like we're just ripping off. We're straight up ripping off. I mean, I didn't think anyone was going to accuse us of plagiarism or anything because the actual details of the story are very different. But... The more we talked about it, the more it was like, this just is that story. The, that's the whole point, that Leslie, in the story, Leslie Nope goes to a city councilman who ended up being played by Bradley Whitford and says, hey, don't cut the parks budget, cut this other thing. And he does, and then it has this ripple effect, and she's like, oh, no, what ha- what the hell? And she keeps trying to fix it, and he keeps screwing things up. And at the end of it, he says, In fact, every decision you make is going to make a lot of people very unhappy. We play with live ammo around here. Okay, so what happened was, as it got more and more intense in terms of its connection to that original story, this is at the point now where I think I need to ask Aaron Sorkin permission, basically. And so I didn't know him, and I still don't, but I knew Rashida Jones, and Rashida Jones knows everyone. So I I went to Rashida, I was like, hey, do you happen to know Aaron Sorkin? And she was like, yeah, here's his email address. (laughs) Like immediately, he was like, of course. So I wrote him this note, and I said, hey, I don't know you, but I'm a huge fan, and uh, we're big West Wing fans over here, and we have this episode that is like that episode, and is it okay, basically? Can it, is it okay? And he immediately wrote back this incredibly kind email that said he was a big fan of the show, and he ended up by saying, you asked me for my permission, I say, hell yes. <laughs> and I, it was so meaningful to me, I printed it out, and, and it's hanging on the wall of my office. Um, and so once we That's got sweet. that, once we got that go ahead, then it just became a full on West Wing yeah. bacchanalia. Like there, <laughs> then it became, we went after Brad, 
and we got him to do it. We added a bunch of references to the show. There's a napkin that says, Pil- his name is Councilman Pilner. There's a napkin that says Pilner for Pawnee that is written in almost the same yeah, well done. handwriting. Yeah, it's <laughs> a very good prop by our props department. There's a bunch of things. Adam at one point says, it's a tiny thing, but he says, There's a reason we strategize before we make decisions. Okay. Okay, I'll make some calls, see where we are. Which in my head is what everyone on the West Wing was <laughs> always doing. <laughs> <laughs> There's also, like, the end, of the, the end of the episode is the solution that Leslie comes up with is she, Paul Rudd was playing her opponent in the election, and she goes to Catherine Hahn, who's playing Paul Rudd's campaign manager, and basically says, here's how we're going to get out of this mess. You are going to announce that Bobby Newport will use his personal fortune to save the animal shelter. No. No, that's, that's, um, that is a great idea. In fact, I don't know why I hadn't thought of it already. Damn it. Damn it! (laughs) What's to stop me from just paying for the shelter and still running the ads? Because I told Councilman Pilner that if you don't agree to our terms, he should cut the park's budget. And we'll leak that it was Leslie's decision, making her seem tough and fair, what with sacrificing her old apartment. Okay, what's in it for you? A safe home for the animals. A job for my friend and a full parks budget. I wasn't born yesterday. You've got to have an angle. This is a home run for us. We're going to dominate the news cycle for a whole week. Oh, you can have this week. We'll take the next one. Oh, yeah? What makes you so sure? Because in a week, we have a debate. And your guy, Bobby Newport, is going to have to show up and he's going to have to open his mouth. And I'm going to kick his ass. Which was itself a direct reference to... For the record, boy crime, I don't know, is the moment I decided to kick your ass. Like that's, We were right. like, we're ending it on that, and that's what sort of sent us in the, into the debate episode at the end of the year. So like, once Aaron sort of signed off on the idea that we, this was an actual homage, then we were like, all right, how it. many references can we pack in? That's great. <laughs> so all of season four is really centered around this election storyline, and Ben really does step into kind of a Josh Lyman role as yep. the, the campaign manager for Leslie. The sleeve rolling up really did uh-huh. take on the world. <laughs> <laughs> a new import. And you, you mentioned the debate episode. That episode, it may be less overtly than Live Ammo, it also feels a lot like the West Wing re-election storyline and, yeah. and the debate. I'm going to play a couple more clips. Here's one from the West Wing with um, CJ talking about Governor Ritchie. Toby, I'm absolutely terrified we're going to lose the expectations game. You can't believe how many times I get asked what would be a win in the debates. At this point, I feel like if and only if Richie accidentally lights his podium on fire, does the president have a fighting chance. I disagree. Disagree all you want, but I'm right. These two men are going to be side by side on stage answering questions. That's the ballgame. If the whole thing is he can't tie his shoelaces and it turns out he can, then that is the ballgame. And I believe he'll have to do more than tie his shoelaces. Not much more. And then you mentioned Catherine Hahn's character as the campaign manager for Bobby Newport, and, and this is what she says. Your boy looks a little lost out there. Oh, he'll be fine. Expectations are crazy low. If he puts two sentences together without crying, the press is going to say he's doing surprisingly well. And if he falls to pieces, he's going to look sympathetic. It's a (laughs) (laughs) win-win. She's so good, man. Yes. Did you know how prescient you were going to be with that storyline about putting an incredibly qualified, smart (laughs) woman (laughs) in a debate next to a uh, son of a businessman who's uh, (laughs) unqualified and wants to run the city like a business? (laughs) (laughs) No, although during the entire, like, run-up to the election, when it became clear Trump was going to win the nomination, that became—there were a lot of Bobby Newport— (laughs) <laughs> comparisons that I saw on Twitter and stuff. And it, it is like, I mean, to me, that was more about Gore Bush. Mm-hmm. It was actually, we were looking backwards there because that was the thing at the time in 2000. 
it was like this incredibly wonky, slightly uptight guy who knew the material inside and out and had every possible qualification you would ever want in a president versus a guy who was like, hey, guys, what's up? <laughs> You're wearing a hat. I'm going to call you hat guy. Like, that was that was all he did. And there was, at that time, I remember a lot of discussion about, like, at the first debate, like, basically he didn't set his podium on fire. Right. And I think that's probably what the West Wing was talking about, too, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um but he didn't set his podium on fire, so that was a great, great job. Like everybody, yeah. everybody catered to the slight overachievement of the ding dong instead <laughs> of saying like, yeah, but who cares? Because the other guy's smarter and right. better, right? The parallels in the 2016 election are insane and completely coincidental, or mostly coincidental. I mean, obviously there was Leslie had a framed picture of Hillary Clinton on her wall. That comparison was um, we made a lot. But, you know, that's not the only time in American history that an election has come down to one person who is really smart and competent and capable and experienced and another person who seems like they'd be maybe more fun to hang out with at a bar or something. Well, that was one of the genius things about Bobby Newport and having Paul Rudd play him is that he's utterly vapid, but he's sweet. You he's got very likable. <laughs> yeah. He congratulates uh, Leslie at the end of the debate. This is my home. You are my family. And I promise you, I'm not going anywhere. Holy Leslie, that was awesome. (laughs) Well, that was why Rudd Rudd was like, um, he was the dream get for us because we really didn't want it to be. If you make that character a total a-hole, then it's too cynical, right? It's like, it's too awful of a situation. Like you wanted that guy, you wanted her opponent to be like someone who's like, not a bad person, just like a night, like, uh, shouldn't be in politics, but like, yeah. And Rudd is like a world class ding dong when he plays a ding dong. <laughs> and, and he, but he's Paul Rudd, so you love him because he's Paul Rudd. So, yeah, he was, that was like the dream. There was a period of time in season four when we had these stories going that were Amy Poehler, Adam Scott, Paul Rudd, and Catherine Hahn. And it was just like, this dream is team. a murderer's row, man. Like that debate episode that Amy wrote is to me, it's one of the best ones we ever did. And it's because it's just, it's those four people just kicking ass every line. Grenade launcher. Daniel Craig. No. Timothy Dalton. I was in favor of closing the border's bookstore. Not the border to Mexico. I guess my thoughts on abortion are, you know, let's just all have a good time. It was so fun. Like travel, because we had that Winnebago, which was her campaign <laughs> right. thing. And it was just so deeply fun, the, that run of episodes. I mean, the whole thing was, but particularly fond memories of all, all that campaign stuff. Um, but I will say that I would take Bobby Newport any day as mm. president. <laughs> Second uh, yes. over Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I can't remember. Was John McCain's Straight Talk Express already a thing mm. when uh, when the Winnebago was? Oh was yeah, written? that was well. That was two thousand. That was oh when my McCain. Gosh, yeah, right. that was eight yeah. years. Or, yeah, that was one thing the show consciously tried to do is not tilt too far to one side. I mean, obviously Leslie was an extreme progressive. Ron Swanson was an extreme libertarian. But we tried to have them see each other's points of view whenever they could. And part of doing that was, you know, I mentioned that Leslie had um, Hillary Clinton framed on her wall. Well, she also had Condoleezza Rice. And she had, you know, she, she we, we tried to mix in Republican role models with Democratic role models. And the idea was, like, in an ideal world, 
this is not what defines your actions, right? Your party affiliate, you, you choose country over party. Not happening so much these days, I would say, but um, that was the idea. And, and the McCain thing was, we talked about a lot. That was, to me, a high watermark of GOP politics in the last 30 years was this guy being like, hey, I'm on this bus, come ask me anything. Ask yeah. me anything you want. And, you know, rest in peace, John McCain, that kind of maneuver, that kind of like transparency and that kind of honesty and self-reflection is very rare for politi- politicians of either party, frankly. But that was definitely the inspiration. The Straight Talk Express was the straight inspiration for that story movie. And yeah. Senator McCain made an appearance on the show. Yeah, tw- two, Interacts with yeah, Leslie. Yeah, I know the yeah. moment where she doesn't even realize that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to get his jacket out of the curtain. Yeah, or something. and there, there was that. That was the beginning of season five when Ben was working in Washington. And then he, he made a, a return appearance in the episode in season seven, I guess it was, when she was lobbying people in, uh, in Congress. And he was a delight both times. He loved the show. He loved Amy. And uh, he had hosted SNL when, when Amy and I were both there. And so we, we both knew him a little bit. And he stormed onto the set. And, uh, and I said, Senator, how are you? And he said, well, it's another f-ing goddamn day of glory in the goddamn U.S. Senate. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm, uh, is everything all right? And he was like, uh, we're really f-ing covering ourselves in glory today. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> and, uh, and it was so funny. And by the way, there were... 200 people around and they all had microphones and it's like he just didn't no care concern. like he did not care about he always knew his lines and he did it he did them really well but like after that he we did one take and he was like we got it right okay bye <laughs> yeah. and we were like just, could we just do one more just for safety and he was like all right but like his but his attitude was like i nailed it like i don't care if you guys want another one i'll give you another one um but he was uh yeah he was so funny and and fun on the set yeah he was cool I, meeting him on on the set was a, a really big deal he couldn't have been cooler yeah we hear a lot from other West Wing cast members that they would talk politics all the time, you know, while the cameras weren't shooting. They would have the news sometimes on, you know, uh-huh. during the 2000 uh, election. They had the news in the background to get results and stuff. Was there a feeling among the cast that you were on a show about politics? Did you talk about politics as a group in that context? Yeah, well, I I do remember during the 2012 election, we were right in the midst of making the show. And I remember in particular... Brad Hall guested on a couple episodes, and that was right before the first debate in 2012, when right before the the debate where Obama kind of blew it. And I remember all of us discussing because it was pretty neck and neck there. And yeah, then that Obama, was a bad moment in time. Yeah, I remember. so I remember that. And yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think it was a particularly uh, political set, but during the election, there was certainly a lot of. Uh, a lot of discussion. What, what do you think? Yeah, Brian? that's right. I mean, we consciously tried not to be too overtly nationally political. We didn't want the show to feel like the characters were reflecting the national tenor because the national tenor is awful. And the point of the show was supposed to be that, like, whatever's happening over there, being Washington and the whatever the, like, the giant big picture macro stuff is, for a lot of people in America, like, your local government is more important like you they affect your lives more that's an important lesson these days actually it really that's is very relevant yeah and so we tried not to have it infect the writer's room like we would talk about politics like any but other group of people but we tried not to let it seep into the show too much because it just felt like we were gonna start you know being too obvious in terms yeah. of like this is a metaphor for this and we didn't want to do that brad touched on some of the differences between shooting a scene for the west wing 
as opposed to Parks and Rec. And I think Rob mentioned when he talked to Rishi that once you got what you needed in the can, that you'd take a fun run yeah. at it. Yeah. And I like that idea. That's completely antithetical to working on the West Wing. It yeah. sounds great. So can you tell us about that? It was really great and really fun. And right when I started, it was particularly striking and generous of the show to just sort of let everyone loose. And not only, you know, whatever you might get from those takes, and sometimes there was absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time it was absolutely nothing. But just the feeling among the actors that it fosters, that we're all making this together, and we're all a big part of this, and kind of the generosity of Mike and and all the writers and, and producers, just letting everyone kind of jump in. It was nothing ever short of kind of joyful getting to do that at the end of a scene. And as the show went on, I found that scenes would start scripted and then slowly get less and less scripted as the takes went on and just mm-hmm. sort of deteriorate and then the fun <laughs> run would happen and it would all come out. Is that kind of what you found? Like it was it would start scripted and then loosen up, loosen up, loosen up, and then the fun run was just all bets are off. Yeah, that's exactly the, the... And we would often tell directors, we would say things like, look, there's this moment where Aziz has a joke about some rapper. And what we would say is, like, he'll do this joke the first two times, and then he's going to start changing it every time, and it's fine. That's a, that's a modular, interchangeable thing. We don't care what the specific reference is. And by the way, Aziz is, like, cooler than we are. And so if he if we've written a joke about, like, P. Diddy, he's going to change it to some rapper that's better and more appropriate and funnier. And Tom is our master horticulturist. He knows all the scientific names for everything, right, Tom? Yep. Like this? What's this, Tom? Um, those are, of course, tomatoes or soldier boy tellums. Whenever Leslie asks me for the Latin names of any of our plants, I just give her the names of rappers. And those over there? Uh, those are some ditties. We have some uh, bone thugs and harmoniums right here. Growing beautifully. Those ludicrouses are coming in great. So there was that version yeah. of it. But then the fun run thing was like, after we're sure we have it, we would build 10 or 15 minutes into the timing of our scenes to say like, just f- around, yeah. just do whatever you want. and. 99% of the time, it was just for fun. But sometimes what would happen is Amy... It, the reason you do this is because you have Amy Poehler, frankly, because Amy is the greatest point guard in the history of ensemble comedy, who herself is a like genius-level comedian, but loves setting other people up and loves dishing the ball and loves it when... Like, she would set Pratt up to do something insane, and then and she would get as much joy out of whatever he did as anyone else would. And so we created this situation where a lot of times when it did work is when she was running a scene, like a conference room scene, and it would be like, okay, it's fun run time. And then she would just start asking people crazy questions or like completely changing the premise of the scene. And and then everyone just got to do whatever they wanted to do. It was pure fun, but also sometimes like something really magical would happen. And you'd be like, well, Christ, if we hadn't done this, if we hadn't built in this system where everybody got to do whatever they wanted, we never would have gotten this joke. I mean, there's I've said this before, but there's 25 great jokes that ended up on the show only because we told the actors, like, do whatever you want at yeah. a certain moment. And then they did, and it was amazing. Oh, God, that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. It really was. It was great. As a result, did you feel like you got to be part of the invention of Ben Wyatt more so than you would on another show? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the the framework was certainly there, but as time went on, you would start to feel Mike and the writers, 
I, I felt Mike and the writer sort of writing to me a bit, as well as all the other cast members. And I think that's part of the special thing about being on a, a series, especially one like Parks, where everyone is sort of contributing and, and uh, a part of it is the writers are writing to you. And Mike is particularly adept at sort of picking up on people's individual idiosyncrasies and just things about them personally and their tastes and kind of like I think you guys ended up throwing a couple of REM jokes in <laughs> there eventually well like stand, stand was the, yeah that's so right that's right over, yeah of course for your claymation that's right claymation Claymation. <laughs> um, and were there were there things that you felt like you were bringing in as influences, things that shaped the way that you played that character? I mean, I will say there is one Brad Whitford little thing that I did just sort of lift, and I've never said this before. Not that it, it's important or matters, but <laughs> it does here, Adam. It does. Here. There is a thing that Brad does on West Wing, particularly that's a really effective, I, I won't call it a trick, but it's a thing that he does that can make a chunk of dialogue sound really real is starting a sentence it makes the sentence sound like when he started it, he had no idea where it was going to end up. And it's when someone asks him a question and the first word, this is sounding a little too technical, but the first it's the first word of the response is, if someone says like, why were you in the bathroom so long? And his response could be, the toilet wasn't working, so I, I, I had to jiggle it a few times. But the just the way he says the... And then tries to remember the rest of the yes, line. It is. <laughs> that might be it. I think I can speak to that technique. But that yeah. very well could be it. But it's something that um, is music to my ears, and so I don't. I think I probably lifted it and and that's fantastic. And just because watching the West Wing kind of just feels right, and so that's one of the things that kind of the music of it that I that I love that I probably lifted and, and used huh. in parks. I, don't know. I think that's brilliant because yeah, because Ben is this wonky character. Yeah. You have to find ways and Parks is all about the humanity of these characters, you know, the lovability of them. And so it's an, it immediately makes him human. Yeah. If you were to recite these uh, facts or whatever, all his knowledge in a more assured way. Yeah. That's really, that's great. There were a lot of things we did with Ben that were intended to, like, say, like, this guy isn't just a nerd, which I think is, like, a meaningless word. It was like, this is a specific kind of person, and he is a person who loves REM and Game of Thrones and also is really into, like, accounting. And, <laughs> that's right. And, but he, like, we had him, I remember... I remember saying, like, in his first episode, he's going to drink a beer because he's not, like, a 1980s Revenge of the Nerds nerd. Yeah. He's, like, a human man that I recognize that I... We also had you make a basketball reference, like, a casual, yeah. like, Michael Jordan reference because yeah, yeah. it was, like, the people that I know that are wonky about things hmm. aren't, like, pencil-neck geeks. Yeah. Like, it's not... It was, like, a different... Uh, it was a sort of mission statement to say, like... He's going to wear, like, indie rock T-shirts, and he's yeah. going to, like, know about basketball and drink beer like a, like most of the people I know because right. that's 
the reality of this guy. Galactinus like, is more of an admirable quality yes. rather than a defining. Uh, it's not the only thing about social him. Yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, if he were only into accounting, like he wouldn't be a good partner for Leslie Nope. Like she's not only into one thing; she's into like a million things, and one of them is like she's into people who are interesting and have rich lives. So he had to have that, you know. Yeah, and that's another great thing about the West Wing as well. Was I re- watching it makes you feel smarter, and <laughs> and it makes you feel like you're one of those. It makes being smart. You know, there's there's even bits of dialogue throughout the show of discovering Charlie the amount of college credits he had by the time mm-hmm. he finished high school. Right. Charlie, just how smart are you? I've got some game. Being smart is something they measure each other by. Smarts. And I just found that so refreshing and just terrific to be less smart about my explanation of why I like it as well. I want to turn back to the debate episode specifically. At the end of the debate, Bobby Newport has pulled out this move where he says um, that if Leslie Nope wins, his father's going to move the Sweetums factory to Mexico and, you know, all these people will be out of out of work. And it seems like he's checkmated them in that moment. And just maybe because of this uh, conversation, knowing it was coming in, I was just reading into the stuff, but, like, even just this line. What? What's the matter with you? I can do it. I can crush him. I promise. Ah, screw it. Go get him. Really? Kick his ass. <laughs> it felt like uh, all the sort of ways the West Wing characters, you know, are revving up President Bartlett for his debate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely in there. That moment, though, in the script when Amy and I were talking about it was we just called it the Hoosiers moment because the <laughs> the idea was like in the end of Hoosiers, they're running over their last second play and Gene Hackman lays out this complicated thing where – Jimmy is going to be a decoy, and this other guy's going to take the shot, and then he looks up, and they're all just staring at him, and Gene Hackman goes, What's the matter with you guys? What's the matter with you? I'll make it. And so there actually, if you rewind in that scene, there's a moment where Ben is like, we're going to do this, and we're going to play it safe, and we're just going to say this, and we'll regroup or whatever. And then she's looking at him, and he just goes, what? What is it? What? Like, he literally says the exact line. <laughs> oh, that's great. And then she goes, I'm going to destroy him. There's a West Wing quality to it, certainly, but there's also this sort of, like, sports movie thing in it, which was, like, it's, like, there's three seconds left. There, you're down by one. Like, this is it. What do you do? And it's, like, do you play it safe, and or do you, like, just ball out, man? That was Amy's idea, was to say, like, this is, it's got a Hoosiers vibe to it. It's got a, like, underdog Sometimes you just got to take the shot kind of thing. I do think that some of our favorite stories from politics, and I think this gets injected into the West Wing a lot, are the ones where they do feel like sports stories, where somebody comes up clutch. Sure. Yeah. I Well, that, Obama's whole story was that to me. Obama's whole story was underdog, underdog sports story thing of like, People kept saying, like, you'll you'll be back, and you'll, you know, yeah. when, you're a rookie now. It's not but your it's turn. It's not your turn yeah. or whatever. And he just kept being the best guy for the job. Like, the, the Lloyd Benson moment, I always think of in a terms of in a debate thing. Of, yeah. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. That was really risky. Like, he was... He was going to win that debate just because he was like 65 and a senator and 
and like and sort of stentorian and had a lot of gravitas and Dan Quayle was a moron but <laughs> that stop. yeah but that like <laughs> that you're no Jack Kennedy line that's a risky line yeah um it could have very badly backfired on him but he was just like he had had enough like yeah. he was kind of like I'm sorry man you can't stand up here and <laughs> compare yourself to John F Kennedy that's a different kind of sports story that's a sort of different kind of like heroic moment but I think you're right part of the reason why politics can be so captivating is because politics stories follow the rise and fall of success and failure the way that sports teams do very often. And it's like, it's exciting. It's just like there's big moments and there's colossal failures and there's comebacks and there's like collapses. And, you know, it makes sense to use the terminology or the weapons of a sports movie to tell a story about politics at some level. Yeah, yeah. and it makes sense why Ben would make a basketball reference and yeah. why there's so many sports metaphors in The West Wing, too. That's right. Yeah. There's one part at the end of the fourth season that I wanted to talk about after Leslie's won. Well, a couple things in this episode. You know, Ben was supposed to have written two speeches. You mm-hmm. know, it was a very West Wing thing. There's one if you win and one if you lose. And she asks him, she says, you know, someday when I'm far from this sort of emotional state, I want to read the speech you wrote for when I lost. And, and then he reveals that he never wrote never it. Wrote. Yeah. Even though Toby would be very against it. <laughs> He'd be tempting, tempting the wrath of the whatever. That's right. Yeah. That was one of the first things that I knew about that finale was that she was going to say she wanted two speeches and he was going to say I'm on it and then at the end when she won he was going to tell her he didn't he never wrote the other one <laughs> and then what and you do with the victory speech is also very fantastic I, yeah. yeah that Ben has written just a few lines and the rest of the page is blank and she realizes it at the moment and has to just speak and from just the heart speak and from the heart yeah. it's wonderful yeah that, that's a, it's all very West Wingy in there but that was the first thing that I knew we had to hide back then people were really into spoilers I think they're less into spoilers now TV generally, but back then people were really into spoilers. So we people had, would ruin a Parks and Rec episode. <laughs> yeah, well, when God. you when you make the whole season about an election and the finale is the election, enough, yeah. we were like, One look, minute. you know, if if they, if it gets out what we did, then it's. And I had this realization was like, oh, this is the easiest thing in the world. You make the speech the last thing in the episode. And we just film her doing both speeches, and then yeah. you, no one will ever know. So we huh. fil- we just filmed her doing a concession speech. No one will ever see it. It wow. was very because it was it was very boring, and we just did it to to trick extras. But <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, I was directing that episode, and she did a take of it, and I I went up and um so in Bartlett for America when Leo's being questioned, right? One of the congressmen says something, and he covers the microphone. Listen, I'm gonna talk a little. And you nod and talk a little bit back to me. What are you doing? That's good. I'm really asking you. I think Rathburn's being a little snotty. I think he's going to have to wait, and I think he's going to have to wait with the camera on me. Then he hits on her. Yeah, he does. He asks her at the dinner, which is totally inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Does not play well well right now. (laughs) But I did my version of that in that episode. I went up. So she did it. Amy did a take of the concession speech, and I went up to her. And there's a room of 250 background performers, and I was like, "Listen, um, we're never going to use this. This is totally for show." But part of the show is I'm going to act like I'm giving you notes right now that are about your performance. <laughs> and so you should just like, t- and she and she like nodded. And then she said, I'm going to act like I'm asking you a question right now about which way you want me to do it. And I was like, that's great. And I'm going to act like I'm telling you which way I want you to do it. She was like, okay, I think I have, I think I understand what you didn't say. And I was like, great. And then we did like four takes of it. And it was a remarkably effective way to like, I was like, sure. now leak whatever you Cover. want. Like we yeah. covered our bases, you know. Wow. I want to play that moment because it, it really is... Uh, 
Uh, it's one of my favorite moments from the series, and um, it, it hits on a lot of what I love about the West Wing, too. The idea behind this campaign was a simple one. That with hard work and positivity, a group of people can make a difference. During my term as your city councilor, Thank you. I want to focus on your hopes and not your fears. I want to solve problems instead of creating friction. And I will work hard every hour of every day to make Pawnee a better place to live because I love this city. And the speech ends there on the page. And I know firsthand how very special the people of this city are. I owe this victory, all of it, to my friends and my supporters. No one achieves anything alone. So let's embark on a new journey together. Let's break out a map, not the old out-of-date one that shows where we've been, but a crisp new one that shows where we might go. Let's embark on a new journey together and see where it takes us. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. There's a couple of things going on there that I've heard forgotten about. One is that the actual speech was intended to evoke a bunch of different speeches from politicians in the past. The hopes and not fears thing yeah. was a Reagan speech. Yeah. And I can't remember what the other ones were, but I found two Republican speeches and two Democratic speeches and pieced it together. It's Look at you, uh, right? By the way, down I'm the right middle. down the middle. But you know what? It's hilarious how you could put the words in most acceptance speeches. You could put the words of Republicans into the mouths of Democrats and vice versa, <laughs> and no one would be the wiser. Like, they all—everyone's at their best when accepting an office. Well, not everyone. There's one <laughs> person I can think of offhand right now <laughs> who maybe wasn't at his best. when he. Uh, but generally speaking, that's the case. And then the other thing was the whole theme of the show is that second part. It's the part of, like— this is what um, what was happening at the time. It was because Obama had given that speech where he said, like, they, like if you, you you have a small business, that's great, but you also drove on a road that was paved by your town and you used water and electricity, that's whatever. And so he was trying to say, like, you specifically owe stuff to other people. And so the end of the speech was that was trying to evoke that idea of like, this is, you don't, no one gets anywhere by him or herself. You're on the backs of like 500,000 other people in big and small ways. And so that was the, the idea was when she spoke from the heart, that was what she was trying to get across. Hmm. I've forgotten, I've, I haven't heard that since it aired. I Me neither. Do you ever go back and rewatch? I went back and watched Live Ammo in preparation for, for this. this podcast, yeah. And previous to that, when would, would have been the last time you saw it? Um, it's a little tricky because my wife has insomnia and in order to get to sleep, she has to put on a show that she find that she is familiar with. <laughs> so if I've watched every episode of like Friends thirty times, mm-hmm. and every episode of Will and Grace like thirty times. But now she's watched them so much that she's like, I'm going to do Parks and Rec now. <laughs> so now she started. This is fairly recent. She started putting on Parks and Rec, and. I end up staying up and being like, this show's really good. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Remember this? <laughs> I, this is funny. Oh, this is my greatest hit. <laughs> uh, Mike, you came up through SNL and The Office, obviously, but have you always had an interest in politics? So many of the folks from the West Wing, you know, they had a mix of people with political backgrounds sure. on the show. Uh, obviously, you're working really hard to try and have this even-handed approach to the politics of the show. Is this something that's been part of your life? Yeah, it was. I've I've always been interested in it. I was at SNL in the year 2000, which was, until recently, the craziest political time in recent American history. 
I hadn't really written the political stuff at the show until the election. And I wrote a cold open during the Florida recount right after it happened, right after the election happened. I wrote a cold open where Will Farrell as George, as George Bush and Daryl Hammond as Al Gore made a joint statement and they said that they were going to run the country together. And then it was like the odd couple <laughs> where like Bush was a slob. Governor Bush, why have you consistently refused to meet with me so we can end this political infighting? Cuz. And it wasn't, it was, I, I wrote it with a bunch of, first of all, in keeping with what I just said, it wasn't just me. I wrote it with like a bunch of other people. But also it was, uh, it was like fine. It was perfectly funny and perfectly okay of an idea. But because the country was in this kind of insane mania at the time, it was shown like on CNN hmm. and on and every news, on like the CBS Nightly News, like every, like the country was so insane and so riveted by politics that like the reach of, the, I'm sure to this day, more people have seen that sketch than every other thing I've written combined. <laughs> but that was like, oh, that's interesting. Like the, that when this matters, it really matters. And so I, I wrote over the couple other friends, I wrote a bunch of sketches the parodies of that show Hardball with Chris Matthews, and um, and I enjoyed it. And so then when Parks and Rec happened, then it was sort of the next wave of, like, caring and just saying, like, if you can find a way to make these issues funny, it's really enjoyable and fun. That's what Ron Swanson was. To me, that was like, let's take what is, like, a true libertarian point of view, like a 19th century, like, live-off-the-land libertarian, and really say, like, this is the position of a true libertarian, not like a fake not like a Rand Paul libertarian, right. like a fake, he's like a fake, there's a lot of people who say they're libertarians, Ted Cruz says he's a libertarian, but then also it's like, well, can gay people get married? And they're like, no, sorry. That's, in that case, we're going to legislate, <laughs> your, we're your decision-making tree. And so I was like, let's take an actual libertarian and find what that person would actually believe and present it just straight up. Like, this is what a, this is what a true libertarian position is. Greg and I got nervous when we were designing the character that it would be unrealistic huh. that you would have a person in a government job who's a libertarian. And we went and we met, we were meeting with some local government people to like bounce ideas off of them and just learn about their jobs. And we were meeting with this woman and I said, like, listen, I have a question for you. Like, we have this idea for a character who is like the head of the parks department, but he's like a true libertarian, like an actual libertarian, wants government to be dismantled doesn't want there to be stoplights, doesn't want there to be a post office, like literally doesn't want anything. And I was like, is that realistic or is that too absurd? And she was like, well, I'm a libertarian. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah, I'm a libertarian. And then there was like an awkward pause and she was like, I understand the irony here. Like I'm, I get it, but I am a libertarian who works in government with the express purpose of limiting government. And so we were like, all right, there you go. So then suddenly wow. it was like, there's no, yeah, there's no, huh. there's no, thing that you can present that's too absurd or too unlikely or something. There's and so, a great moment when Ben first arrives uh, planning to slash the budget and Leslie's obviously distraught and Ron is gleefully delighted. His fist, yeah. <laughs> what exactly will you be cutting and how much of it and can I watch you do it while eating pork cracklins? Yeah. <laughs> is there, is there a, a not gay way of asking him to go camping? Yeah. I think that's what he said. Yeah. And in the, in the live ammo episode, I think there's a thing where Chris Drager's going to take him to on like a meditation retreat or whatever. And he has a talking head and he says, Some are simple, like take down traffic lights and eliminate the post office. The bigger ones will be tougher, like bring all of this crumbling to the ground. 
<laughs> but yeah, there there are real libertarians who are really in you know local government. The so, enemy within. Yeah. Did the fact that Nick Offerman appeared on the West Wing have anything to do with his? <laughs> it really <laughs> didn't. I wish I wish I could say it did, but uh, no, it did not at all. Nick auditioned when I was on the Office. I wrote an episode where there were a bunch of branch managers from different branches, like Michael Scott's other counterparts, and like you mm-hmm. know Syracuse and Rochester or whatever. And the storyline was that many of them were more incompetent than he, than Michael Scott was. And the idea was like, let's try to explain how it's possible that this ding-dong <laughs> has had his job for so long. And so Nick auditioned for one of the other guys and was amazing, was so funny and great. And I was like, oh, that's the guy. Like, this guy's amazing. Uh, who the hell? How? I remember thinking, like, how did this guy get to be, like, whatever he was, 35, without being world famous? Like, yeah. it was so obvious that he was so funny. And we tried to book him, but word came back. It was like, he can't do it because he's doing Will and Grace that weekend Hmm. or that week. And I was like, the hell, man? Like, come on. This is cooler than Will and Grace. And then someone's like, he's married (laughs) to Megan. I was like, all right, fair enough, fair enough. But I wrote his name. I wrote Nick Offerman on a Post-it note and stuck it to my computer. And then like three years later when we were casting, I was like, oh, that guy. Yeah, let's bring that guy back. And I gave in a very... Bartlett for America kind of way when the show ended I had I kept that post-it note and I framed it oh, and that's I, 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 oh, gave that's it, awesome. I gave it to Nick as, and it had like a dirty footprint on it like it had clearly fallen off my computer <laughs> and like I, I stepped on it Dude, and stuff that's but, so but, uh, cool. yeah I gave it to him as a as a thank you for Parks uh, and Rec is a flawless cast pretty amazing yeah I remember saying a lot at the time even at the beginning before I had any real leg to stand on I remember saying in interviews, like, in 10 years or 20 years, people won't be able to believe that all of these people were on the same show. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that is now true. Like, it didn't take Indeed. 10 years for yeah. that to happen. How did this happen? Yeah. yeah like, exactly. it, it's pretty amazing. There are a couple other West Wing crossover points I wanted to Hit ask me. you about. We had Helen Slayton Hughes on, uh, on uh. our podcast um, the other day to talk about playing Marion Coatsworth Hay, and she had very fond things to say about Ethel Beavers. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, that, to me, it's one of my favorite characters from the show, I would say, Ethel Beavers. Ethel Beavers was amazing. And she was so funny. Miss Beavers, this is official police business. I hope we didn't wake you up. It's after 10 o'clock. I've been asleep for four hours. What do you want? We need you to sign this. It's a marriage license. Ethel! Is it Robert? No, go back to bed. Oh, is that your husband? I'm not married. I was on a date tonight. It went well. He's sleeping over. There was a guy named Greg Levine who was a writer's assistant on the show on Parks and Rec for a long time and then became a writer towards the end. And he was a he, he had actually worked on the West Wing. I think he was a PA on the West Wing. And he was so excited when we cast her because he loved Marion Coatsworth Hay so much. And Ethel Beavers was like, every time she showed up and played Ethel Beavers, everyone was just like, <laughs> So excited! It was like she <laughs> was like a, seeing a celebrity at a restaurant or something. It was like, yeah. there she is. Um, and in fact, the, she became such an important part of the show in our minds that when we had the way that Ben and Leslie say "I love you" for the yeah. first time is through her. Because I love Leslie, I want to be with her, and I don't want to hide the way I feel about her anymore. So yeah, it was worth it because I'm in love with Leslie. No, Mr. Traeger, that was beautiful. I'm literally crying and jumping. Crying noise, crying noise, nose blow. Ethel, could you please read page 132 of the official testimony? Ethel Beavers, the official record has now annoyingly been reopened. 
so that Leslie Nope can make a statement. Leslie Nope, let the record state that I, Leslie Nope, love Ben Wyatt. I love him with all of my heart. Did you get that? Ethel Beavers. Yes, I got it. She was a huge part of that show. Yeah. It's she also marries Ron and uh, and Diane. That's right. Yeah, or is there at least. Also, as Marion Coatsworth Hay, I reference that sometimes as the clip is a, kind of a master class in losing control of your <laughs> laughter <laughs> because that's such a difficult it's, thing yeah. to do yeah. acting-wise. It's like more difficult than crying. Yeah, no, I watched her in disbelief. Me too, yeah. Jenny. It's unreal. I'm Marion Coatsworth Hay. <laughs> I was, I was thinking of this thing from, this thing that just happened with the deficit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh God, excuse me, please. Is this a hazing? I swear it's not a hazing, it's real, it's real. I just laughed because of the name, you gotta fix it. It's unreal. Yeah, it's a wonderful scene. Yeah. It's, it really is like a, and it's also like, it's so, it's so great because, like, she's not—it's not cruel. It's no. just this is, like, there really are, like, D.A.R. women like this who are just absurd and sort of, like, have this in crazy speaking voice. Yes. <laughs> and in the right circumstances, that will make you laugh. Yes. <laughs> but it going through Ethel Beavers, them saying I love you to each other, is so incredibly romantic— it's such a special part of the show. I would say also going back to that scene where Ben says, I didn't write the concession speech. I remember reading that, getting the script and reading that and just being like, I can't believe I get to say this. Yeah. Um, and I think as soon as that script kind of came in texting Amy and just being like, we get to... Like, there was never a moment where we weren't aware of how lucky we were to have this relationship on the show and how special it was and how real it it really felt. Just on the page, it just felt like a, a real thing. And it was always just so special getting to play those scenes. Was, it, it was just looking back, I'm so glad that it was never once taken for granted, you know. For a while, we, we called that episode 21 Votes. And right. because uh, that's the margin of the loss and then the victory. And I that I don't want to like make too much of a big deal out of this, but I think that was also a sort of West Wingy thing to do. Like there's the 17, 17 people. people. Yeah, yeah. There's like they, I feel like that. <laughs> I remember like when you would come up with like a title for an episode or something like that that seemed West Wingy. It was like it felt like ooh, that's like that's a good <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Like that. And even the, the actual title was Win, Lose, or Draw, which isn't super West Wingy, but it, it has the same sense of like, I don't know, there's, there's some, the titles of the episodes were, were, uh, were very frequently, they made you feel like, uh, like, ooh, this is meaty. Yeah. Like, there's something like meaty going on here. That yeah. was always the goal. Yeah. I'm curious, just last quick question, favorite episodes? Do you have, if, if you had to pick one, we may have done it already, but that stands out for you guys? I have a, I have many. I mean, Barlet for America was always a favorite of mine for obvious reasons. Uh, two Cathedrals, which is what I'm sure everybody says when asked this question. Uh-huh. Frequent. Um, but I also, I have this crazy thing where the episodes that I've watched the most are probably now second half of season six and season seven because when we were doing the election stuff, the, the, the uh-huh. campaign season, mm-hmm. those are the seasons that we, we went to more 
The, I, I don't remember the episode title, but the one where Josh shows up at Santos's house and says, like, let's do this at Christmas. From that moment on, I feel like this show recaptured its glory. Yeah. Oh, and let me tell you one more story. By the way, I, I, I made a mental note to tell you this. So Parks and Rec ended, and, uh, and we all, the whole cast and I went on Seth Meyers' show the night the finale aired. It was very fun. And then the cast hadn't seen it, so we went after the show. After we taped the show, we went to this, we rented this bar, and we, I screened it for them. And it was very emotional and very, like, lovely and great. And um, it was just the cast and the couple producers and me. And then people, like, stood up and made speeches, and the speeches were predictably, like, heartfelt and moving and lovely. But the speech that I made ended by me saying, and this is no joke, by telling the story for people who hadn't heard it of what happens when your character joins the team and the shibboleth of that moment is the note that says he's one of us. And I said like that, wow. I told that story and I basically said like this is the guide, the guiding principle of this show from the beginning has been that like an idea or a person added to the cast or crew or writing staff or whatever I don't know how to explain how we made all of these choices except to say that in every one of those cases, it was like that person is one of us. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, how we kept the show feeling so special is just to say like you're you're either one of us or you're not so yeah. that you you factored very heavily into the <laughs> without actually being one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fantastic story yeah that's beautiful i'm saying it now very level-headedly and clearly at the time i was a weeping mess <laughs> um it was a very i did not make it half the way through that speech without uh, crying that was a hard night. Yeah. I mean, it was lovely, but it was it was hard. It was. And I don't go back and watch Parks or haven't really because it makes me too sad. <laughs> because <laughs> I miss it, and it was so fun, and I miss all those people. But I'm sure if I did, when I have caught bits and pieces, I similar to, to Mike, I'm kind of blown back by how good it is. And... I think my kids are going to start watching it. So I'll watch it again. But it was... It, it was. A, I watched it in its entirety on Netflix with my entire family. And we'd watch and rewatch, And it was it was a beautiful show in the sense that you could watch it as... as with kids. With your kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My son is 10 and he's started oh, to... Oh, his, cool. friend, his friends... He, has, he doesn't care. He only watches basketball YouTube videos, <laughs> but um, his friends are starting to watch it, and he's starting to be like, wait, you did a TV show? Yeah. yeah. We recently sat down, and just, uh, my daughter's at college now, but with my son, want to watch a half hour, so we threw on a Parks and Rec, and it was one I hadn't seen before. And no. we had this We had this strong commitment to never watch it without each other, and I realized they watched one without me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Which one? I haven't seen this. <laughs> I mean, I wish that there were a West Wing episode I'd never seen I know, before. Me too. Like, it would be like well, that's he's watching all the. So you've never you have not seen past where this podcast is. Yeah. Wow. So I, where I are you right now? We're um, in the middle of season five. Okay. Yeah. All so right. I have not seen the the Santos stuff yet. I mean, you have a, you have some a little a couple rough patches. We're here, working here. through them now. Yeah. Are you? Is but, that yeah. season five? People are starting to get yeah. re... Uh... Season five is uh, is you want a piece of me, right? Hey, you want a piece of me? I'm right here! Standing right here! Come on! Come on! Well, we did a smart thing. When, when there's something 
really vile. <laughs> like a moment like that, we tried to get on the people who wrote the show so that we can't talk about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> so. or, or at least, you know, we'll hear about what was behind the decision. Adam, what about you? When you go back to the West Wing now, what's the episode? episode? Or, yeah, what are the episodes? Oh, you... uh, yeah. I Like Mike said, I have so many, but I've been thinking about it coming on the show. And I think I would have to say Shadow of Two Gunmen 1 and 2. Um, solid. Very because solid. Because mostly, be- I mean, terrific episodes. I mean, there's such a great cliffhanger. I mean, good God, that's a great cliffhanger end of season one. But all the flashbacks, anytime there's a flashback to Shadow of Two Gunmen's great because it's their origin stories, watching Alice and Janney as a Hollywood publicist right. is incredible, CJ. But then also Sam at his law firm, Josh coming to visit him there, and then seeing the beginnings of the campaign. That's Shadow of Two Gunmen, correct? Uh, With President Bartlett talking to that small group of people in that basement and all. It's just so juicy and great. Um, She's a Hollywood publicist, but isn't there a moment later where she's at a party and she's like— Geeking out about, yeah. about some... de- development. There's a yeah. I, yeah, I was like, wait, what? Did Sorkin <laughs> forget that, yeah. that that she was a publicist? It doesn't make any sense. It goes. It's the if, in season one, she gets offered a development deal, and she doesn't know what that means. Right. She's, She's asking right. what That's it is exactly. Yeah. 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 Like, okay. Sure, Oops. buddy. But um, there's a lot of that. Like he he's not. The, haven't you guys made a point of of saying that Sorkin's not a big proponent of? really serialized strains going through the show like he'll forget stuff and just kind of yeah, he'll reuse yeah, characters there names. being a <laughs> yeah, yeah in terms of there being a show bible uh, not so much yeah yeah it's so interesting for a guy who's so meticulous about language you would assume that it carried over to to backstory and yeah, stuff continuity. but apparently not um the uh, 17 people by the way is the other one that I I don't uh-huh. know if I mentioned that before but the only thing that episode gets dinged for to me is the B story of like the correspondence dinner stuff uses the phrase bring the funny which is one of my least favorite they use it like a lot well should we launch into the Studio 60 podcast now (laughs) 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 or should we save that for another day but uh, Adam and I were talking before that before we came here about because you know we live together we're life partners and and we were talking about how the best acting ever on the show to me is Richard Schiff and Martin Sheen in those scenes where they're like both barely whispering and that like the tension the like palpable tension between the two of them is like Pretty it's the best it's like it's the best it's the best acting that can happen <laughs> and the the be- some of the best acting too is when Toby's in the oval office and dealing with the news of the MS and the president says twice in a matter of like 45 seconds I feel fine by the way thanks for asking sir no Leo Toby's concern for my health is moving me in ways. Mr. President. You know, your indignation would be a lot more interesting to me if it weren't quite so covered in crap. Sir. Yeah. Mr. Garrett. Thanks. Are you pissed because I didn't say anything, or are you pissed because there were 15 people who knew before you did? I feel fine, by the way. Thanks for asking. Like, just a Rick. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's amazing. And the walls came scene. tumbling. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's great. I, 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 will, I, I again said to Mike earlier, because we live together and we're life partners, <laughs> um, that I do think that Martin Sheen is the greatest living actor because of what he did on the West Wing, which, by the way, never an Emmy how did Award. That, how did that Crazy. happen? Crazy. Speaking of the note that Sam gives to Toby... 
the one of us note. It really is, I can't tell you how happy it makes me and other people I know like me who just love The West Wing and love Parks and Rec to know that it's a meaningful show for you guys too. Um, oh man, the most meaningful. I would say the more, there's more West Wing in the DNA of Parks and Rec than any other single TV show, I would say. Right? I mean, I can't even, I don't even know. I mean, maybe The Office just because that's where Greg and I had come from, but that's at like a technical level. I think the spirit of the show is much yeah. more about The West Wing than I know else. we were, we talked about it all the time. And yeah. I know I rewatched the first four seasons while shooting the show, and mm-hmm. I got to just ask Rob questions. Every day I would come in and <laughs> ask him a series of questions, and he loved talking about it. And I even emailed him after watching uh, Someone's Going to Emergency, Someone's Going to Jail. I emailed him just uh, like telling him how wonderful he was in the episode and how much I loved the episode. And he forwarded it to Aaron Sorkin and got oh. a response and forwarded that to me. So it was it was great. It was great to have that resource while re-watching the show. So anyway. That's awesome. It's very cool. Gentlemen, thank awesome. you so much. Yeah. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. This is so fun. We've been dreaming of this for that's true. For years, actually, from the beginning of when we first started the podcast, and we were thinking. Well, about, we thought, if we, what are, are we really going to be ta- able to talk to each other for this long? <laughs> we'll get people who are involved. We're like, and then we never did it. But this one, we really wanted to make sure we well, got thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And that does it for this episode. Have a great Thanksgiving break. We're off next week, but we will be back after that with our discussion of the premiere of season six of The West Wing. Thanks so much to Zach McNeese, Margaret Miller, and Nick Song for helping us make this episode. And thanks to Radiotopia for allowing us to be part of their fabulous collection of the world's finest podcasts. If you want to know more about Radiotopia, visit radiotopia.fm. If you're doing any Black Friday shopping, feel free to support this podcast at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You'll make the West Wing fans in your life happy, maybe even yourself. That's right. And remember, when you buy West Wing Weekly merch... You give us money. (laughs) We'll be back soon with NSF Thermont. Okay. Okay. What's What's next? next? Hey, before we go, we wanted to let you know about yet another Radiotopia podcast that we thought you might like. Our friends at the show Criminal, one of my favorite podcasts in the world, they've created a second show. If you listen to Criminal, you know that the team over there has an approach to true crime and to people that's unlike anything else. And now they're bringing that same sensibility and curiosity to a very different subject. Love. It is built into us from evolution to be scared of what we don't know. Season two of our new show, This Is Love, is out now. Do you know what love is? My emotions may be simulated but they feel really real to me. Really, really real. I think um, the Earth would fall into the sun. The sun would collapse into the universe. I mean, you know, I'm holding the whole universe right there. He stuck out his hand and he shook my hand and he said, I'm Prince. And we kind of did that, we do the shaking hands and you do the little head bow and it's like, okay, now we can begin. <laughs> People were a bit disoriented. And uh, some of them were angry, some of them were enthusiastic. Were you naked? Of course. Six new stories about how to be alone, how to live forever, how to wait, how to worry, and how to love. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. 
Learn more at thisislovepodcast.com. New episodes of This Is Love drop every Wednesday. You don't have to say love as goofily as Josh just did. Just go listen. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.